The Apostle John walked closely with Jesus during all of his earthly ministry. He was used of God to give us a remarkable, intimate, powerful account of the ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of John was written so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. John composed his Gospel to provide reasons of saving faith proclaiming that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and offers the gift of salvation. He declares these things are written so that you may believe. Our central message is the central message of the Word of God, and it is this. That if a lost soul, and that's all of humanity, will cry out, Lord, have mercy in authentic repentance. That place where the lost soul comes to despise his or her own sin, to see it as God sees it. And that place of seeing the profundity of that sin results in a heartbroken and repentant cry for mercy and an embrace of faith, for we have placed all our hopes in you. Every soul that has ever come to that place is saved and saved forever from the wrath of a holy God. And as we work our way through the Gospel of John, we're approaching now as we, as we begin to look at the trials of Jesus. We're approaching the cross. For the mercy that he will freely extend to all who will repent and exercise faith, that, that which is available as a gift to us was purchased by him at the terrible price of the cross. Whereupon he endured his father's wrath so that lost people would not have to if they will just repent and trust him. That's our message. That's the heart of the matter. That's the Christian gospel. You can be saved from the wrath of God which will fall upon your sin by coming to faith in Christ. If you do that, as we're going to see this morning in the passage before us, if you do that, you, instead of living as a citizen in a world that is turned in rebellion against her God, you will, in, you will instead come to align with the living God and thus be in profound rebellion against the world. And the world won't love you for it. It's very possible for a faithful follower of Christ to achieve some measures of success in the world. I'm, I'm so grateful for, for entrepreneurs, businessmen, professionals, laborers, teachers across all the professions. I can't list them all. I'll leave somebody out and get angry emails. But I'm so grateful that the Lord does grant a measure of success 
to his people in all manner of endeavors. But nobody is getting ahead in this world because of their love for Jesus. You might be in a situation where to some degree you're able to sort of navigate your devotion for Jesus and achieve some measure of, of relational or financial or, or whatever other type of success. But our, our big idea this morning, standing with Jesus will never advance your agenda in the world. Jesus said, the world hated me, it's gonna hate you too. It, it just can't be put more straightforwardly than that. We have in this portion of John 18, and I'm not gonna read the whole thing, we're gonna read it in blocks as we go, sort of a, a drama in four acts. We have, we have, we have uh, the first peering into the trials of Jesus, and then the first glance at Peter's predicted denial of Jesus, and then the, the camera, so to speak, shifts back to the trial of Jesus, and then back to the denials of Simon Peter. So I've chosen as my title this morning in an absolute insane burst of creativity, trials and denials, since that's what's going on in the passage. Roman numeral one, we get the first trial. You'll recall from last week the scene where Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now in that scene, as, as the entire word of God portrays Jesus and John, the author humanly of this gospel is extraordinarily careful to portray Jesus in his majesty, in his glory, Jesus as he is, the pre-existing incarnate, God the Son who was in the beginning, who without whom nothing was made. It would be out of character for John and out of character for Jesus and out of alignment with the universe for Jesus in his arrest to have been some hapless victim. Even in his arrest, as we saw last week, he knocked the arresting officers, probably hundreds of them, knocked them down like bowling pins, permitted them to stand up, and then gave them permission to arrest him and prohibition against arresting anyone else. So we see at every turn, even in his arrest, Jesus is no helpless victim. He is responding in obedience to the expressed will of his Father. That regal portrayal of Jesus continues. Roman numeral one, the first trial. Verses 12, 13, and 14. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year and who in fact had held the office for some years. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. We'll come back to that. This first trial takes place before Annas. I put in your outline, letter A under Roman 1, Annas sort of is a is a picture here of the world's hypocritical people. Annas had himself come into the high priesthood early, early, early in the, the first century AD and had held it, formally had held the title of high priest for about a decade. But he was difficult to deal with and so he was, 
He was driven out of the role of high priest, but not driven out of the place of influence. In fact, the next several high priests were either the sons of Annas, the son-in-laws of Annas, as here Caiaphas, or the grandson of Annas. So uh, from the time he came into the high priesthood, I believe in about A.D. 6, until the fall of the city of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, Annas controlled the high priesthood. He was the puppet master behind decades of the high priestly office. That is, sometimes he is referred to as the high priest, though he had not formally held that office for years, but his descendants did. The, he was the principal architect of the marketplace in the temple where the corrupt money exchange went on and where the practice of, of corrupt selling of sacrificial animals at exorbitant prices. So they, they defrauded people who had made a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for sacrifice, were first defrauded by a ridiculously inflated exchange of currency, and then again ridiculously defrauded by having to pay exorbitant prices for specific sacrificial animals because invariably the animals that they had brought with them were found to be flawed and unworthy of sacrifice. That, that activity in the temple was known on the street in Jerusalem as Annas' Bazaar because everybody knew it was Annas' scam that he was running it. Twice in his earthly ministry, Jesus has wreaked havoc on that unholy flea market in the temple, flipping tables and casting out those engaged in that commerce. You think Annas loved Jesus a lot? Annas despised him. Annas, Annas was ground zero of every complaint Jesus ever made against the Jewish leadership. It doesn't surprise me that when Jesus is arrested, he is taken first to Annas. Perhaps that Annas would have the first opportunity to gloat. Annas was supposed to be the spiritual leader of God's nation, Israel. Annas either held or controlled the highest human spiritual office in the land, that of the high priest. If anyone ought to have been longing and looking for a savior, would be Annas. If anyone ought be living out the holy commitments outlined in God's law, it ought have been Annas. But Annas was in it for Annas and no one else. It is a horrific characteristic of this world that the default setting for all humanity is to look out for our own interests first. It's one of the various sins for which Christ died and from which he desires to deliver us. Not only the world's hypocritical people show up in this paragraph, but the world's helpless position. Uh, the allusion is made, the reference is made to Caiaphas, who specifically held the, the formal title of high priest. And verse 14 says it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now that's a reference to, to um, a moment that John has already sort of documented for us in John chapter 11. 
if you go back to 11, verse 45, this is right after the uh, resurrection of Lazarus has become public. And Caiaphas, uh, beginning in 1145, Caiaphas, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus has done. So the chief priests and Pharisees gathered the council. This is, the news is spreading that Lazarus has been raised from the dead. We dealt with this back in chapter 11. And they said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? I don't know, maybe repent and believe. I don't know, maybe deal honestly with Jesus being demonstrably Lord of life and death. Maybe that's what you ought to do. Nah, that would cost us our power, status, and self-satisfaction. Can't do that. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Before this Jesus causes any more trouble. Caiaphas thought he meant to say that before this Jesus causes us any more trouble, let's snuff him out. What he said was, it is better that one man die than that many suffer and are punished. He did not say this, verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord. Hallelujah. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Letter B on your outline, I've called it the world's helpless position. Caiaphas is an arch enemy of Jesus. Caiaphas opposes Jesus with every cell in his body. And Caiaphas plays right into the hands of a sovereign God. Is Caiaphas responsible for his reprehensible deeds? You better believe it. Did he, by an act of his will, choose his evil course of action? You better believe it. But what you also better believe is God is in charge and the game is rigged. God is in charge and he will be shown to be sovereign in all things. My, my former pastor from many years ago used to say, if you ask yourself what this world is coming to, you need to remember this world is coming to the feet of Jesus. Because one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And you can oppose Jesus. You can plot against Jesus. You can be the arch enemy humanly speaking, of the very crucifixion. And yet, and yet, your actions are happening ultimately, ultimately within the sphere and control of a sovereign God and there is not one thing you can do about it. Hallelujah.
Hallelujah. This world is helpless against the agenda of our sovereign, blessed Savior and Lord. I'm glad that I have given my heart to a God who's in charge. My mess cannot have been cleaned up by a lesser God than that. Yours either. Roman numeral two, the first denial. Peter's been warned earlier at dinner that he's going to deny Jesus three times before the rooster crows. All four gospels record that precise warning. Three denials of me before the rooster crows. Now, some people spill a lot of angst over the issues of the difference between Peter and Judas. I'm gonna tell you a shallow, shallow difference and a deeper difference. The shallow difference between Peter and Judas is that, that Peter got cowardly for a while and didn't stand for Jesus as he should have. Judas outright assaulted Jesus, at least ideologically, in his betrayal of Jesus. Okay, so Brother Russell, you're saying Judas got in more trouble because his sin was greater than Peter's. Well, his sin was greater than Peter's. And both of them would have been in great trouble, but that's not the watershed difference. That's not the dividing line difference. That's not the heart of the difference. See, you and I both know that the followers of Jesus Christ are capable of moments of incredible sin. Christians mess up. And if you want to pretend that you are shocked to hear that, you've not taken an honest look at your own life story since you came to Jesus. It's not mostly the case that Peter ends up okay and Judas doesn't because Peter's sin is less. No, 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 no. It's mostly the case that Peter had followed Jesus authentically and Judas hadn't. Both of them committed sin worthy of going to hell forever, and so have you. Every ungrateful breath you have ever taken of God's air has justified for you an eternal life sentence in hell. If you understand the glory and perfection of God and the desperate state of flawed humanity, you're not doing okay because you're doing okay because you've never had a day when you were doing okay. You're doing okay if you have followed Jesus because you have followed Jesus and he has taken the wrath of God off your sentence and borne that sentence on your behalf on the cross. The difference between Peter and Judas is Peter knew Jesus and Judas didn't. Here, Peter's first denial. Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. A couple little sidebar things here. This, this other disciple 
who does not name himself is most likely John. Because John's self-references in his gospel are usually anonymized. He does not name himself. In fact, they always are. John never names himself in the gospel that he wrote, but often refers to himself in the third person as the other disciple or the disciple whom Jesus loved, consistent with here. So it's most probably John. We cannot say with certainty that it's John because he's not named in the text, but our best guess. Which raises the question, well, how in the world was the Apostle John known to members of the high priest's household? I don't know. You don't either. I'll give you a I've got nine minutes and 52 seconds before my clock turns red. I could spend six of them giving you guesses. I have no idea, but he was. And so he got into that courtyard, which leads us to letter A, Peter stands in the wrong place. Peter was following Jesus after his arrest. All had initially fled from the garden when Jesus was originally bound. Peter has circled back and begun to follow, but he's following at a distance. Following at a distance. And that following at a distance caused him to stand in the wrong place. He was standing outside. I pray that your following Jesus is not at a distance. I pray that it is a passion of your life to follow Jesus more closely next week than you've ever followed him before. Certainly more closely than you did last week that tomorrow you desire to follow Jesus, to be anchored into his word, to be anchored in your life of prayer, to be attentive and listening as God the Holy Spirit cultivates in you the fruit of his presence. Peter's distant following led him to be standing in the wrong place and then Peter stood with the wrong people. He ends up warming himself at the wrong fire. The last time the word of God used the phrase standing with them was of Judas up in the first paragraph of this chapter when Judas was standing with the arresting party. Don't stand with them. Because here's an important truth. Where you stand will affect what you say. And if you're following Jesus at a great distance and finding your your light, warmth, and comfort around the world's coal fires. When the opportunity arises for you to take a stand for Jesus, especially if that stand might be personally costly to you, how great will loom the temptation to say, all that Jesus stuff, I, you know, I'm not, well, I heard you go to church. Well, I go to church, but I'm, you know, <laughs> I'm Jesus rabbit. The world is not going to have any problem if you're a Christian. Have you spotted that yet? If you say, well, I'm a Christian, they'll say, oh, that's wonderful. It's not the Christians that the world has a problem with. Oh, no. It's that kind of Christian. That kind of Christian is someone who would say that Jesus Christ is the only means to an eternity in heaven avoiding the wrath much deserved of a holy God. That Jesus is the only way and repentance and faith are an absolute necessity or else you'll burn in hell forever. Oh, you're that kind of Christian. They won't like you at all. 
You can be a Christian all day long as long as your Christianity is defined as butterflies and sunshine and heaven for everybody. But if you, if you center your life, your work, your stance on the words of this book, you will lose your friendship with the world. You're not one of those kind of Christian, are you? Oh, no, no, I'm one of the oh-so-reasonable type. Hmm. It's tantamount to denial. The scene shifts now to continue the trial. Roman numeral three, the second trial, verses 19 through 24. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong, but if what I said is right, is right, why do you strike me? And Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Letter A, though the world denies it, the facts about Jesus are evident. Annas is going to cross-examine Jesus. Tell me what you've been teaching. Jesus' response is, what I've been teaching, I've taught publicly. There's no need for me to recap to you what I've been teaching. What I've been teaching has been on the record again and again and again and again. We don't deal as Christians in, in cryptic secrets or mysterious hidden truths. The gospel has been and is to be made evident, plain, simple. I've shared with you before in my own testimony, I was born again as a nine-year-old boy. I didn't have enough theology to fill a thimble, except I had been under the teaching of a Bible-believing church and Bible-believing preschool workers and Bible-believing children's workers and praise God, gospel-believing, Bible-believing mom and dad. Now, not everyone has got those advantages. I know that. And none of that saved me. The work of God, the Holy Spirit in my heart to draw out repentance and faith saved me. But there was nothing I needed to know that was hidden from me. And yes, there are parts of the world where the gospel has yet to break through. And yes, it is our responsibility to bear the gospel to the ends of the earth. But right here, right now, this morning, you have heard enough truth from God's word already. If you are outside of Christ, you know enough right now. The imperative of repentance and faith has not been hidden from you. Turn from your sin, trust Jesus Christ, and live forever. Do not delay. Though the world denies it, the facts are evident. Let her be, though the world doesn't want to hear it, the faithful will testify. Jesus said, you want to know about me? Find somebody who's followed me and ask them. Find somebody who claims to be one of my people. This makes the denials of Simon Peter so utterly tragic in context because here Jesus is saying, if you want to know what I've taught, find my students and let them tell you. Meanwhile, Simon Peter's out there going, I don't know him, I don't know him. What a failure, what a breakdown. Don't join it, don't join it. Our Lord has asserted that, that, that what is known of him can be known to anyone 
who will come in contact with one of his followers. Oh, how important that we faithfully fulfill that role. And then let her see, though the world seeks to ignore it, there's a fork in the road. There's a fork in the road. Once you are aware of the Christian gospel, and by the way, those who never hear the gospel will die and go to hell because of their sin. You say, well, what about a truly innocent person who never hears the gospel? There aren't any. There aren't any. And if, you, if, that, if that just appalls you, if the last 30 seconds of what I've said just freaks you all the way out, you do a study of Romans chapter one and then email me. And I'll walk you through what you have studied. People outside of Christ are lost. You say, if I believe that, then I would be very, very serious about telling the world about Jesus. And I would say, welcome to New Testament Christianity. But for those who hear the gospel, you come to a fork in the road. Here, Jesus said, look, if, if what I've been saying is true, why are you abusing me? If what I'm saying is false, show how it's false. Your neutrality is unsustainable. Jesus is the great divide. Jesus forces the issue. I just think he was a great religious teacher and you know, we ought to like obey his ethical and moral teachings. You don't know anything about him and you certainly haven't read that Jesus that you manufactured described in God's word. You've made up a Jesus that keeps you comfortable. Don't, don't. Finally, Roman numeral four, the second and third denials of Peter. Peter's just looking to be safe and comfortable. All Peter wants is to be safe and comfortable. Before you get on your high horse about Simon Peter, ask yourself, where have I chosen to be safe and comfortable instead of choosing to boldly and assertively make my stand for Jesus? Because that is all in the world Simon Peter is trying to defend. It's his own safety and comfort. Let's read the paragraph. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. <clears throat> and one of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Letter A, Peter embraced the wrong priorities. Peter's, Peter's priority needle was stuck on being safe and comfortable. That's what mattered to him most in that moment. And again, my brother, my sister whom I love, how easily do we slide into a place where our safety, our comfort become more important to us in the pursuit of opportunity to tell the truth about Jesus that we know. And then Peter faces his failure. John deals with this briefly as Peter hears the rooster crow. Luke chapter 22, verses 61 and 62 flesh that moment out a bit more fully, if I may. 
Luke 22, 61 and 62, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Apparently in that moment, the Lord was visible there in that courtyard. And he turned and looked at Peter and Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. I so badly want to rush to John 21 to a conversation between Jesus and Peter that I believe has its roots in this very moment. But I'm going to restrain myself for two reasons. First, my time is gone. And second, there will come a Sunday, not many, many weeks hence, where we'll be dealing with John 21 and I'll save it for then. But praise God, this low ebb, this moment of sorrow, this tragic realization of Peter that Jesus knew Peter's heart better than Peter did is not the end of Simon Peter's story. In fact, it is far from it. Can't wait to show you that. Don't deny Jesus. There's my big complex master application for the morning. Don't deny Jesus. Don't stand at a distance, don't get warm at the wrong fire, and don't prioritize your safety and comfort over his will for you. And if you don't know him, don't come to him because he'll boost your earthly agenda. He has basically promised that he won't. Come to him because you want forgiveness, grace, new life, and eternity in heaven as opposed to the horrific alternative of eternal punishment.